0: From the LA Times studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and the everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Sean.
1: And I'm Jen Yamato. This week on the 13th episode of our podcast, we're joined by journalist, activist, and filmmaker Jose Antonio Vargas. He'll talk about why coming out as undocumented was for him harder than coming out of the closet.
2: I knew what the gay thing was, and so it was easier to say it out loud. I didn't have any language for the immigration part of myself.
0: We'll also discuss that time he took his Lolas on a gambling trip, the challenges of defining Asian American identity, and that time he made a movie about whiteness.
3: All right, let's do this. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus, in the TV app, on all iOS devices, and TV app-supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. Do you go to the bathroom? Then this ad is for you. It's hard to believe that when we use the toilet in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. That's crazy. Imagine jumping in the shower and not turning on the water, just wiping your body with dry paper. For years, bidets have been available, but hideously expensive, costing thousands of dollars. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean behinds to everyone. Hello Tushy uses a precise stream of fresh water to leave you feeling clean. And it's only $79. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't need to wipe it all. Even the best two-ply just can't compete when it comes to a hands-free bathroom experience. Ditch paper products and uncomfortable chafing when you switch to the soothing, cleansing stream of water from a Hello Tushy bidet attachment. And every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and end every flush with a smile. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer just for our listeners. So go to hellotushy.com enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com enough. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a bottle of wine after work, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. And that's where Postmates comes in. On days where work gets crazy, I know I can count on Postmates to bring me the lunch I need to keep my energy high and make my deadlines. Just yesterday, I got a handful of last-minute projects and hadn't had time to pack lunch. Luckily, Postmates saved the day and delivered me my favorite salmon poke bowl. But Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery too Convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. So no more trips to the store. No more late-night fast food runs, and I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android. Find your favorites and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving Asian Enough listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days on Postmates. To start your free delivery, download the app and use code ENOUGH. That's code ENOUGH for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it.
1: Jose Antonio Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, filmmaker, and a powerful voice for immigrants. In 2011, he came out as an undocumented citizen in a New York Times essay and later a Time magazine cover story after covering politics and tech for the Washington Post and at the Huffington Post. He has also worked with us here at the L.A. Times, and now his organization, Define American, uses storytelling and media to start conversations about what it means to be American in a changing America. Welcome, Jose. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me.
0: So I wanted to start out kind of talking about the Bay Area. You came to the U.S. at the age of 12 from the Philippines to live with your grandparents, kind of as Silicon Valley began to boom you know, we talk a lot about the question of where are you from? And for you, that question was really complicated. Why was that?
2: Actually, I have grown to love that question, where I'm from, because what I usually do, and this is my journalism training, I guess, is I turn the question around and start asking people where they're from. You know, I ended up making a documentary for MTV five years ago now, I think. Yeah, five years ago, called White People. And that was inspired when I was visiting the University of Georgia in Athens. And this young white kid, I think he was the president of the College of Republicans. So he and I got an exchange, right? And and you know how people of color, we always get asked where we're from. And so instead I flipped the question around and I'm like, where are you from? And he was like, what do you mean? I'm American. I'm like, I know, but where are you from? And then he goes, well, I'm white. But white is not a country. Like, where are you from? And I just, I mean, his frozen, confused, face is like cemented in my memory. And that's when I was like, okay, I have to do a film and ask young white people to answer this question of where are you from? Because if you don't know where you're from and how you got here, how can you actually ask anybody about immigration and papers and obsess over walls and borders if you don't even know how you got here?
1: Right. And I actually, I, I love that documentary that you did that you're talking about because you... are very gently, but I think forcefully in, in a very important way, managed to turn a lot of these questions that could be very hard for white people to receive. You turn these questions back to them and really interrogate whiteness with white people in such a fascinating way. It's valiant energy that I see coming from you in that.
2: I have to say, by the way, that really happened because the MTB president at the time, Stephen Friedman, knew my work. I met with him and he asked me, hey, what is a project that's not immigration related that no one is letting you do? And I said, I want to do a film on young white people. And he gave me the money and we got the production team and we filmed in three months and we aired it. And I actually, I don't like reading reviews of anything because I feel my Angelo used to give this quote that if you read a positive review of something you did, then you have to find a negative review to balance it out. So I didn't read the write-ups on white people until I was working on my book because I ended up doing a chapter called White People in the Book. And I didn't realize how many people hated that film. They thought like the headline was you know, hey, Jose made a film and it's too easy on white people. It's White People 101. And in retrospect, I'm like, yo, we are on White People 101. What do you think the Trump era is?
0: I so remember that film for its like confrontational tone. And it was such a different time when that that film came out. White people are not very comfortable talking about being white. And so it came out and just kind of talked about it in this sort of like brilliant and confrontational and 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 like really upfront, in your face type of way. And, and that's something I've always really appreciated about you and your work.
1: I'm curious you grew up in the Bay Area. You but you came to the Bay, the South Bay, at a time when Silicon Valley was really on On the come up, but like in your book, one of the reasons I enjoyed reading it is because it brought me back to growing up at the very same time in the East Bay, looking to movies like Sister Act and shows like Full House. And and like, I don't know, I listened to like, you know, 106.1 Camille on the radio and all these different ways that I absorb pop culture at that same time in the Bay Area, very diverse place you talk about. But you talk about it also in, in the way that it helps form your idea of the world. So what was it like for you growing up in the Bay at that time?
2: Well, it was confusing. I came to Mountain View, and at the time, the base was still open. There were quite a number of Black students at my middle school. But then when it closed, right, which is when I was going to high school, then my high school, Mountain View High School, was basically like a third Latin, mostly Mexican, a third Asian, a lot of Filipinos, and then a third white. And so from the very beginning, I think I was always confused by this black and white dynamic and where as an Asian looking person with a with like a Latino name, where I fit. And I think in many ways, my obsession with whiteness as a construction probably started at that time. When I was in high school, of course, I was in the student newspaper, and my principal, who I become kind of like an adoptive mom. Um, I asked her, like, you know, I was doing a, a story about how segregated my high school was. And I noticed that all the black kids were in front of the cafeteria. And the white kids and the Asian kids were in the middle of the quad. Most of the Latino kids were like behind in the back of the campus and the black kids were in front of the cafeteria. So my principal gave me a book literally titled, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in Front of the Cafeteria? That's a book? <laughs> wow. yeah. okay. It's a book wow. by Beverly Tatum who used to be the president at Spelman. And so that was the beginning of like, you know, for me, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, and Maya Angelou are like my holy trinity. Like, I'm not sure how I would have seen myself in this country as an undocumented gay teenager if I wasn't exposed to their work as early as I was. Because from the very beginning, I was questioning this idea of what am I assimilating to exactly? What is America to me? If, if all these writers that I was reading questioned American citizenship as it related to Black Americans, then what does it mean to a Filipino American?
0: That makes so much sense to me because, I mean, in terms of trying to learn to have a non-white voice as a writer, to write about non-white stories, you kind of have to learn, like, what does a writer of color sound like? And so much of that is learned from the Black community, from Black writers.
2: Like, what I've found is it's so hard to unite Asian people. Asian is like a lot. It's a lot of us, right? Different cultures, at least Latinx people, have a shared language. They have Jorge Lamos in common. Like, what do Asian people have in common outside of noodles and rice?
0: T, maybe. We've we've certainly wrestled with this when we decided what to name the podcast.
2: But but for for me, though, one thing that I've found is that our generation, like, Asian people can unite against anti-Blackness in our communities. Like, that for me has been a point of connection that I've found with other Asian people, regardless of ethnicity.
1: Well, and that starts with like an understanding, like, you have to have an understanding, a better understanding of the complex history of race in different waves and generations uh, in America to even get to a point where you can have that conversation. So I feel like I haven't heard that conversation being had until really fairly recently.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about solidarity in the Asian American community with other races. And so what does it mean and what does it look like? Like, how do you act in solidarity?
2: Well, I mean, I think a lot of that, too, is How uncomfortable are you willing to get? You know, look, I've been uncomfortable since I got to this country and realized that I wasn't supposed to be here. So if anything, I'm just sharing my uncomfortability. Right. But what I've found, especially in this era, you know, like, I don't know about you, but I've just been reading everything about what happened in Minneapolis. And of course, one of the cops is Asian. You know, like... Putting into context, kind of like, how am I going to have this conversation with my with my Filipino aunts and uncles and cousins about a moment like this? A, yet again, be an instructive moment. I remember when Michael Brown happened, right? And I remember when Philando Castile happened, and remember when Sandra Bland happened. And like, part of activism to me is not necessarily what you post on social media. It's about what are the conversations you're having with your relatives, the old ones and the young ones. It's not just my nephews and nieces who are already down. They understand it already, right? But my aunts and my uncles, you know, I'm Filipino. And I think among the Asian groups, Filipinos voted for Trump at a higher number than any other groups on the other Asian ethnicities. And I find that deeply disturbing and also deeply kind of like, okay, I got to go work on my uncles and my aunts.
0: You've also spoken about, trying to get Latino-centric immigration organizations to expand their purview. And you shared your experience of then being detained in McAllen, Texas in 2014 and and the privileges you were able to exercise to get released. And so I wanted to ask, like, why do you think it's tough for the public at large, people in the movement, activists, the average reader, to
2: see Asian Americans as part of the immigration conversation? It's really tough. Like... To the point where, thankfully, my grandmother raised me to be polite. So I always reach out privately to people. I remember back in 2011, 2012, where they would regularly have immigration roundtables and panels and public events and don't include undocumented Asian people. And I would get asked because everybody assumes I'm Latino because of my name. Right. And I have to explain I'm Filipino, Spanish colonization, all of that. Right. And so at Define America, and that's one of the things I've been really proud about, how inclusive we've been on this. Like, we don't do anything that doesn't include Black, Asian, and white immigrants as well. You know, like, being inclusive actually means being inclusive. That's what it means. And at a time when Asian people are the fastest growing racial group and the fastest growing immigrant group, the fact that we're actually the fastest growing undocumented population, right, way more than Latinx people, like, so that's why, for me, this gets at what conversations are we having at home with our own relatives? How does this show up in the workplace? How do we dismantle this model minority myth that is so hurtful and insidious? And that has to happen in our own networks. And again, you know, we were talking about this. Like, sometimes I feel like there's a lot of performative activism that happens. That's just like for Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Like, I'm interested in the internal stuff that's happening that you're not willing to share publicly.
0: Yeah, if posting on social media helps, I'm certainly willing to post, you know. (laughs) But I doubt that it does. That's kind of always been my problem with that, I think.
1: Well, let's, let's go back to the start of your career. Your interest in journalism came fairly early, it seems. But with journalism obviously comes bylines and with bylines comes visibility. Tell us about why you first decided to go into journalism, to tell stories in that medium and what kind of journalist did you aspire to be at the time?
2: Well, to be honest, I kind of fell into it because, okay, so I I got here when I was 12, found that I was undocumented when I was 16, right? This was in 97. And then a few months later, I was in my English class and my teacher, Mrs. Dewar, said, I asked too many annoying questions. I should try journalism. And up to that point, I was really obsessed with Mike Nichols. <laughs> like, I wanted to be, like, a director of theater and film. I wanted to do that work. So journalism was not even in my mind. But then when Mrs. Dewar said it, I started figuring out what it was. And then I realized that, my, like, my real name could be on a piece of paper, the only reason I became a journalist was because my six, my 17-year-old head was thinking, if I'm here illegally without the right papers, well, what if I'm on the paper? That's the only reason why I became a journalist.
0: Now, your first bylines were with the Mountain View voice. And then <laughs> you ended up working at a couple different places covering like tech, you know, always returning to subjects of race and, and minority identity. And then national political journalism, which is kind of like more of a traditional path. Did you ever want to write about immigration?
2: Like, were you afraid that you couldn't? I was at The Post from 2004 to 2009. And I think I may be the only Jose who was a reporter in Washington, D.C. And so I would get asked a lot to do immigration stories, and I just avoided them like the plague because I knew that it was a conflict of interest. And I come from a training of journalism where I'm supposed to be, quote unquote, objective, Like the only people who are allowed to analyze things are white people. They have columns, right? Like you know, if 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 David Brooks says it, it's an analysis, (laughs) right? If 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 a a person of color says it, it's an agenda.
0: Has your thinking changed on that? Do you still think it's a conflict of interest?
2: No, I I mean that's why I think Nicole Hannah Jones at the New York Times represents a real shift. It used to be when I was growing up in journalism, your identity can be used against you to say that that your work is advocacy journalism or you're not being objective enough. Now, I feel that people's identities being actually helpful in coverage.
1: Actually, do you still see yourself as a journalist? Because obviously with um, the organization you founded, you've sort of pivoted a little bit. But I feel like the, the core of, of that mission seems to still be the same. Um, how do you how do you see it now?
2: I actually think my work is really informed by my training as a journalist. That's why I go on Fox News. That's why I engage conservatives and Republicans. That's why I insist on complexity. Like in this country, we assume that all people of color are against Trump. That is completely false and misleading. The only group of people that are actually really against Trump are black people. Right. Like Latinx people and Asian people like there are, you know, we're related to many of them. Right. Who voted for Trump? So I I think my work has informed a lot by my training and my temperament as a journalist, by the fact that I'm willing to to really ask these hard questions and interrogate.
0: So in the last decade, you've come out as an undocumented immigrant to a nation, to the New York Times, to Time magazine on TV. You've also come out as gay to your family. Which one was scarier and why?
2: (laughs) Uh, Okay, let me answer that by an anecdote. A few years ago, I was about to do this event in New Jersey. Uh, A priest who's Filipino reached out. You know, there's a lot of Filipinos in New Jersey. And um, he said, we would love to do a fundraiser for Dreamers and would love to have you. But just so you know, I don't agree with homosexuality. And again, thankfully, my grandmother raised me. So I heard Lola in my head, you know, be polite, be polite, be polite. And so I said to the priest, you know, Father, like, I don't come in halves. You know, I come as a whole. So, like, if you're not willing to deal with that part, um, I'm sorry. So I guess we can't do the event. I actually think I was forced to deal with my, I came out much earlier. I came out as gay when I was 18, But that was because I knew what that was. You know, Ellen DeGeneres was on the cover of Time magazine. Will and Grace was going to be the number one show on television. I lived an hour away from San Francisco and I knew who Harvey Milk was in the history books. So I knew what the gay thing was. And so it was easier to say it out loud. I didn't have any language for the immigration part of myself. I mean, I didn't know at the time about Carlos Bolosan because they don't teach Bolosan. He's not required reading for a lot of schools. I had to find him myself, right? The, 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 the groundbreaking Filipino writer. So I, in many ways, I was forced to come out as gay a lot sooner because freeing myself of that was a way to deal with the other part. But a friend of mine said to me, Jose, I don't think you've really dealt with the gay part. <laughs> And he reminded me that I don't like gay pride parades, right? And what I really wanted to do was have these deeper conversations about, you know, what it meant to be queer and what it means to be queer in a, in a corporate environment in which people want the gay dollars, but they don't want to deal with the complexity of gay identity. And I also really resisted kind of the racism within the gay community, Right. Like, thankfully, I grew up in, again, the Bay Area where sticky rice, you all know what sticky Mm -hmm. rice is, right? (laughs) Yeah, I was like a sticky rice. Right. I, you know, I like Asian guys. And so when I moved to the East Coast, like that was such an exotic thing. Like as a gay Asian man, I was supposed to be attracted to white men. That's where I was supposed to go. And I was like, "Uh, no, like I'm actually into Asian guys or Latin guys or black guys, you know, like. So even Mm -hmm. that for me was really disorienting in that way.
0: Yeah, it's like identity comes with these responsibilities or these obligations or expectations that are not always the best fit. You know, we talk a lot about that on this, this podcast. We want to talk about another label, uh, Asian American. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the way I would describe it is that the label of Asian Americans hasn't always served Filipinos very well. What is your take on this?
2: <laughs> so my take on it is we all need to give each other a lot of grace. I know I exist. (laughs) As a Filipino, I'm proud of being Filipino. I'm definitely Filipino enough for myself. Whether or not Asian people think I'm Asian enough, that's on you. That is not on me.
0: Was that a label that you wore, though, like growing up? You know, did you like identify as Asian American and all that?
2: Having grown up in the Bay and having gone to San Francisco State where there's so many Filipinos, like... That's what I love about the Bay, right? Like the Vietnamese community, the Chinese community, the Japanese, everybody kind of has their own thing. It wasn't until I moved to Washington, D.C. that and I was like, like oh, I'm Asian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, because they didn't know what to do with me. I literally have to keep telling people what a Filipino is.
3: There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers, and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing. No more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com enough. That's netsuite.com enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. Look around you. It's a wireless world, and that means everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds started about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds in the market, and that they sound just as amazing as other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice, noise isolating fit. When I got my pair, they were game changing. I work from home sometimes, and it's important for me to stay focused. Raycon's wireless earbuds let me listen to the high quality music I love, whether I'm at my desk or walking around the house. The company was co founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Cardi B and Brandy are obsessed with Raycons. So pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com asianenough Asian Enough. That's buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash Asian Enough. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus for your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today.
1: Well, one thing I was really curious reading your memoirs, which are that's such a fantastic book and and it's so personal in in such a beautiful way that I can't imagine was easy to do. But one thing I loved was you speak so often in the book about these touchstones that are very relatable, these cultural touchstones that formed your idea of Americanness, right? You said that when you were a kid you would watch the Oscars with your mother in the Philippines and um me as well I related to like immersing myself in pop culture which by default is is inundating us as children with images that don't reflect us but it was it was a, a piece of of the world that I could own that I could know inside and out. And I think that's why I I grew up loving movies. It became part of a, a major part of my identity. But that's something that I thought was really interesting is like the idea of how we learn to be American, whether, you know, like no matter where we come from, what do we internalize? And then how do we as adults learn to unlearn that? Huh.
2: No, that's a, oh, okay. That's a question. I'm like a big Steven Sondheim fan. I don't know if you all saw the 90th birthday YouTube celebration. I, I mean, it was it was amazing. All right, of course it was amazing. But for me, outside of the Audrey McDonald, Meryl Streep, Christine Baranski thing, right with Late Ladies for Lunch, was the rendition of Someone in a Tree from Pacific Overtures. Mm. I, it was so especially in the context of what we're living with right now. And then, and it was interesting too, because I had forgotten that Stephen Sondheim said that that is his most favorite song he ever wrote was that Mm. song. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, I haven't directed a musical yet and I've always wanted to do that. So I'm like thinking to myself, okay, my first musical is going to be Pacific Overtures. Like, how do I do this? Um, Like, it was just fascinating To to And if you haven't seen this, check it out. It's on YouTube uh, with those fantastic four actors, Asian actors. Because, you know, the song is all about perspective and point of view and what happens when you're younger, when you're older. You know, when I was writing my book, I was thinking about... This is going to sound really selfish, but I really wrote the book to figure out why I'm so depressed. So, like, I wrote the book preparing to leave, right? So, like, I think the first sentence of the book is, like, I don't know where I'll be when you read this book. And then the last Mm -hmm. sentence was my mom, I thought it was important that she had the last say. but the last sentence in the book is when my mom said to me, maybe it's time to come home. And I thought I was going to, you know, I have to promote the book, contractually obligated by HarperCollins to do that. And then I'm going to use the money from the book and leave. Because, you know, I'm going to be 40 next year. Thank God I'm Asian. So hopefully I look a little younger than that. But like, I just don't know how long I can keep living with these limitations. Right. Like I've been in this country 27 years. Everybody thinks I'm Mexican. I should at least go see Mexico. Right. Like I really want to see China. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Chen Lu, the figure skater Chen Lu. Um, and I've always wanted to see where she came from Chung, China. I remember. Um, I want to see the world. And then I wrote the book. And there's a line in the book that was probably the most important to write was when I wrote, Home is not something I should have to earn. So it wasn't until I wrote that line that then I started thinking, how can I possibly leave? And then a few weeks after I, my manuscript was done, I heard from a superintendent of the local school district that I attended as a kid. And they said that they were considering naming this elementary school after me in Mountain View. And then I started thinking, how do I explain to all those students that I left? You know? So that was another reason why I'm like, clearly I didn't leave the country. I'm still here. I'm in Berkeley, the Republic of Berkeley, where, you know, people fight over kale. (laughs) That's so
0: powerful. Like, I I remember reading Alex Tizan's book, A Little Big Man. And it kind of reminded me, you know, what you said about, like, trying to figure out why you're depressed, you know, why you're angry. Like, that's such a, like, a line of inquiry for immigrant kids. Um, But yeah, I wanted to ask you know, about Define American, you know, you have this mission to change the way we talk about being American, which I think is my mission too. And, and I would like to know like when and why did you start
2: it and, and how do you measure success? That's a great question. You know, the moment I come out in the New York Times Magazine as undocumented, you know, I know how journalists work as I am one. So I knew that they were going to focus on me for like a day. But, you know, mine is one very specific story about an undocumented gay Filipino, And there are 11 million undocumented immigrants. And here's the thing that we don't talk about. We don't talk about the total immigrant population. There are 45 million immigrants in America today, 45 million. According to Pew, those 45 million people will constitute 88% of the total U.S. population growth in the next 50 years. So from the very beginning, I wanted to understand how do you define American at this historical moment in which there are 45 million immigrants in this country? Like we talk so much about, of course, undocumented people because we should. We talk about refugees because we should, but we don't talk enough about the total immigrant population. I don't know if you all know this, but there are about 9 million people in this country who are green card holders, who are here as legal permanent residents, but have not become U.S. citizens, right? Like every four years in an election season, we argue about the same 30,000 voters in Florida and Ohio, and yet there are 9 million people who could be U.S. citizens who could vote, but we don't talk about them.
1: What kind of answers do you get to this sort of hypothetical, right? How do you define American?
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think it's such a personal question to ask. I think we could all afford to look kind of deep inside and answer that question. So from the very beginning, my goal is how do we use stories, not just one story, but stories, right, to humanize how people understand immigrants in this country? In a country in which, unless you're Native American, indigenous to this land, or African American who were kidnapped to come to this country to build it, right? you're an immigrant from somewhere. So that's our job. And the way we do that, to me, I'm really excited about this part of our work because right now we've consulted on almost like 70 television shows and movies, right? Like Grace Anatomy, Superstore, Roswell. Actually, what happened was after Trump ended DACA, Shonda Rhimes reached out to us. She emailed me because Shonda Rhimes is amazing. And she was like, this is awful. Let this happen. How can we help? And Shonda, by the way, you know, I mean, it was just fascinating to have her reach out like that. And so I said to her, well, there's actually undocumented medical students that we know of. We ended up working with a group called PhD Dreamers. And then we sent, I think, four or five undocumented medical students to the writers' room of of Grace Anatomy. And then the New York Times published a story after the election that said, the television show you watch is a greater indicator of who you voted for than than the political party you belong to. And among Trump voters, Grace Anatomy is one of their favorite shows. So we reached more people integrating an immigrant storyline in Grace Anatomy than we did going on MSNBC or CNN. This work, this is narrative shift, right?
0: Here, let me offer some context too. Is that like I think also the the idea of like proving Americanness is something embedded in you know the immigrant community and and why they come to America, right? It, it's not something that just you know us English speaking Asian Americans sometimes think. It's something that my parents think.
1: Absolutely. To pivot, but also keep talking about representation. What was your take on? Andrew Yang's Washington Post op-ed in which he suggested that the Asian American community amid anti-Asian sentiment in this pandemic essentially prove their patriotism, prove their Americanness.
2: You know, it was hard because look, like Andrew has become in the past couple of years, like an incredibly important person that represents us, right? But he's just one person in the same way that I'm just one person. We can't all represent all Asian people. Right. But I think with that platform comes responsibility. And I think it comes with the responsibility of real interrogation of, you know, I would argue that what we're living through now is our own misunderstanding of America and American history. You know, even I'll never forget. I took my Lola's. I took like my grandmother and my grandfather's sisters to Ellis Island a couple of years ago. They've never gone. I take them to Vegas every six months just so they can gamble. So I'm used to taking my Lolas with me. So before we went to Atlantic City, we went to Ellis Island. And I took my, just imagine, you know, four Lolas, right? And me. And we get to Ellis Island and we get to kind of the the museum part where they're seeing kind of Irish history, Italian history. And then one of my Lolas, Lola Flory, which is the Lola responsible for getting everybody here. So she got here by marrying a U.S. citizen who's Filipino. And then she petitioned everybody else, right? So then she's, we're there and she goes, um, lang, mga puti itua, which means the people in the pictures were white. She didn't know that white people were immigrants. I was like, Lola, what do you mean? So in her head, she's been in this country since 1968. In her head. Immigrants is us. She never even knew. I'm not sure if, it's, if it wasn't the citizenship tests that, that people take. The history of Ellis Island. And then after I found that out, then I got them in front of the whole section of the trailer, Trail of Tears explaining Native American history. They didn't know that. And then there was an entire exhibit around the slave ships. And look, my Lola Flory, I love her very much. I love her very much. But my Lola Flory, since I've known her, you know, has always had some somewhat problematic anti-Black things to say. And it's always been hard for me to kind of push back on her because I want to respect her. I don't want to be disrespectful, but like, you know, don't do that, right? So I forced her to stand in front of this exhibit and explain to her what happened when all those Black people from different tribes were kidnapped, right? And then put in a ship and chained. And then they had to pee on each other and shit on each other. And they got here. And then my Lola started crying. And she said, stop saying this. And I said, Lola, no, no, you need to hear this.
0: Uh, it's almost like you're disagreeing with their dream of what America is or something.
2: I was in many ways, you know, again, this is the irony, right? Maybe the beauty of America is, you know, I'm the undocumented grandson that had to explain that to my grandma that... This is what America is, you know, and we can't talk about it if we don't know what it is. Right. But I think these conversations are so important, you know, especially in our communities.
0: Yeah, I I so often hear this from, you know, reporting in immigrant Asian immigrant communities, especially, you know, the idea that they have to earn citizenship is something that they come to America with. You know, it's something that our immigration system and our society and our media and our pop culture supports and what breaks my heart is when they kind of talk about americans as not them, you know, in american society, not our society, right? and there's this acceptance of something lesser and i always find myself wanting to say to them, you know, the thing that you said in your book which is a home is not something you need to earn, you know, a home is something that 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 everyone everyone has a right to, you know and i guess how do we change that though how do we like unpack this narrative in, in within immigrants within the
2: immigrant community like i know like one of my aunts who i was referring to like one of my aunts who's been here since the late 90s who's a green card holder she's uh she cleans hotels for a living and when i found out that she had that 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 she doesn't vote because she hasn't become a us citizen i offered to pay for her citizenship process and she said no 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 ton that's my nickname in Tagalog. Ton, ton, hindi na ton. um just get me a macy's card right? Uh, You know, America's consumerism, right? And then when I asked her, you know, auntie, like, why haven't you become a U.S. citizen? She goes, oh, they don't really want us here. We're just here to work. That is heartbreaking, isn't it? It's like, how do you tell
1: so many people that, yes, they deserve to feel entitled to America just as much as anybody else?
2: Well, for me, this gets back to not only self-education, but the importance of civic engagement, right? Like, I hope all of us now, because of what's happening in our country, I hope all of us are defining community in our own way. Like, what does it mean to belong to a community? You know, like, what does it mean to be accountable to each other? Like, what does it mean to be a citizen in this country?
1: It's time for Bad Asian Confessions.
0: It's basically when we invite our guests to share a story or a moment in time or an experience where they felt like a bad Asian. And Jen and I usually give our own examples. Uh, and the idea is to unpack the idea that there is such a thing as being a bad Asian, that there is such a thing as being Asian enough, that everybody is Asian enough, essentially. So uh, Jen, you have one ready?
1: I do. So I'm a film reporter, so this makes it even worse, right? And, I, and I'm in a Japanese-American, I'm an Asian-American film reporter. Who does try, do try to to elevate marginalized experiences in, in my work. But when I was a kid and the movie, The Joy Luck Club came out, hugely meaningful movie, possibly the biggest ensemble of like Asian American women actors that I'd ever seen. And for the longest time, I resisted watching it. I didn't want to watch it. And I don't think I really thought about why for a long time. I was told I should see it. You know, it was like, I knew that I should want to see it. I should want to feel seen by it. And yet I resisted uh, for a long time. Maybe you guys can help me unpack that.
0: Uh, I, I have a theory. I mean, like, I think like our Asian culture has been used in pop culture to mock Asian American people. And so often that like even an authentic or a faithful presentation of Asian American culture can be triggering and upsetting. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's 1993. I'm watching like Newsies, you know, those are the movies that I'm watching over and over again, which are not in any way reflective of my life. Goodness knows I needed, I needed to see myself on screen and yet I resisted. So that's, that's mine. I have obviously seen it since then and I'm still glad it exists.
0: So, so mine is that I'm just bad at math and I, uh, (laughs) I have, I got a 30% uh, in my, uh, multi calculus class in college.
1: Whoa. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, I almost like epically failed a class um, and didn't get to major in economics. But then I sort of like took it as a challenge to my pride and and studied up and and got a like a ninety five percent on the final and ended up with like a B minus. So
1: Frank, math is hard. So
0: Yeah, and there's no reason I'm supposed to be good at it. No. All right, Jose, what do you got for us? You have one?
2: Oh God. Okay. Um so there used to be a club, a gay club in Soma in San Francisco called Dragon
0: awesome (laughs) so far.
2: The first floor was like the Asians who were into hip hop. The second floor was the Asians who was into like electronic music and like, you know, pop mostly. And the third floor was like the, like the fob Asians, the fresh off the boat Asians. And I ended up, I ended up hooking up with a fob and... (laughs) Feeling like a bad Asian person because like we couldn't communicate. <laughs> right? Like I just felt like we didn't know how to communicate. And so I really thought he was hot. And so I'm gonna go. To this day, I don't know if he was Korean, Chinese, or Vietnamese. I don't know. But yeah, so that's my bad Asian story.
0: Objectifying a hot Asian guy at a club. Love it. All right. I love right. it.
1: Look, how many, how many like white Men in movies and TV have gotten to do that with people of other ethnicities or or movies that get them wrong, you know?
2: Actually, you're making me think, though, because those dragon like nights were awesome. I mean, that's like a really great movie right there, like Asian gay men in three different, you know, floors.
0: I want that to be a movie. I also want the Atlantic City trip with your uh, Filipino Lola so, like, to be a movie. <laughs> Do you have a bad Asian confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show.
1: So that's it for episode 13 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jenya Mato, and by Frank Shong. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and our original music was composed by Andrew Ethan This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar.
0: Okay, we're going to take a little mini break, but we'll be back with another great guest in two weeks. You might have heard of her, the writer, model, TV host, foodie, Padma Lakshmi.
3: India is a very special country because it's like Europe under one government. So you can travel for just an hour by car, and people will be speaking a different language. If
1: you like Asian enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Schaff.
0: We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one in our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support L.A. Times to subscribe.
1: And remember, the next time someone asks you that dreaded question, maybe flip it right back at them.
2: Like, where are you from?